Welcome to episode 148 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is fellow analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started with my first topic. And just yesterday, I posted a Forbes article on the LEO satellite space race between Starlink and AST Space Mobile. And it's actually, my friend, blown up on Twitter. Apparently, there's a lot of interest in space. And what I did, I had an opportunity to speak with both AST Space Mobile and AT&T. And I gleaned information that's been publicly available from T-Mobile and Starlink. And I published my hot take on where I think things are at. And the opportunity with Leo is tremendous to complement cellular connectivity, especially in areas that are underserved by traditional fiber and fixed wireless access solutions. And I did call a winner um, after evaluating all the data and, and speaking like in link with AST Spence Mobile, I really feel like even though when you compare market caps, and this is an interesting topic on Twitter because a lot of folks were comparing AST Space Mobile's market cap of about 1 billion with, with Starlink, SpaceX of about 80 billion. But at the end of the day, I believe it's patents, it's technology partnerships with companies like Nokia, and the fact that AST Space Mobile is focused on satellite to device connectivity versus Starlink, which is a fixed broadband solution. Given the scale, it's quite compelling that AST could have, at least initially, an edge with respect to an opportunity to scale out the operation. What I also like is I spoke with AST Space Mobile is that they've signed over 35 MOUs with mobile network operators all around the world, including AT&T. Now, I think we've talked about this on a prior podcast. Back in April, um, AST Space Mobile and AT&T, along with Samsung, demonstrated the first satellite to smartphone call. And I expect more to come in the future. But at the end of the day, if you want to read more about it, go hit my, my Twitter handle at Willtown Tech. And I would love to hear your feedback. I did not read your article yet. Come on, man. <laughs> I've been a little busy. There you go. But I do think that AST Space Mobile has a very energetic audience on Twitter. I think a lot of these guys are also investors in the company, which I think is a factor in their excitement for anything <laughs> around AST Space Mobile. But I do think in some ways they do have a lead, but I also think that they're also, they don't have control of how their satellites go up in space while SpaceX does. You know what? Yeah, because actually, ironically, SpaceX is what's, the vehicle to launch their Correct. satellite. So it's quite interesting. And also the way AST Space Mobile is approaching this is very different from how other companies are doing it. They're building these much bigger arrays that are like very large. I do think it will figure out, we'll find out, I think, for the next year or two where everybody is, at least in the first phase. I think our conversation with MediaTek was a good one. They seem to be powering a lot of the chipset side of these things. And because of that, I think we're in the very early phases of satellite connectivity, and a lot of it's pretty low bandwidth at this point. Um, mm -hmm. And I think until we start really getting stuff like 
five satellite NR and getting NR-like speeds, I think it'll be very difficult to know who actually has the edge. Now, right. that said, Starlink does have by far the fastest speeds for fixed wireless. But those are even coming down with speed. And they've also added that connectivity to RVs, boats, and planes. So it's not like the technology isn't capable of handling moving objects. Good point. Fitting it, making it work with a smartphone is a totally different beast. And I'm really curious to see how this all shakes out. But they've definitely partnered with the right companies and they're really moving forward. Um, but I wouldn't write off T-Mobile and SpaceX yet, nor would I link mobile or Snapdragon or all the other existing incumbents. There's a lot of consolidation I think we're going to see probably in the next two years. And we're going to see some companies go under. And once that consolidation occurs, we'll probably have a much more clear picture of where the market's at probably in the next two and three years. No, I agree. And in my article, I do talk about the fact that because expanding its capabilities for objects in motion, as you mentioned, recreational vehicles and that sort of thing. And at the end of the day, I believe competition breeds innovation. I've spoken about that on numerous occasions. And I'm, this is at a point in time when things can change over time, obviously. But, but it's exciting. It's a space race. Let's open that article. Looking back at the 60s when we wanted to put a, an astronaut on the moon. And it's exciting. And I think you're right. Um, there are a lot of fanboys out there that are AST Space Mobile investors. And it's been interesting. I've gotten like a lot of great feedback. One of them told me that I made the Space Mob Hall of Fame. <laughs> I think at the end of the day, what's really interesting is that there's a ton of attention on this topic. Now, there's also a lot of concern around putting, and you and I have talked about this in the past, putting too many satellites in the sky and how that affects astronomical concerns and that sort of thing. It's, it's a very complicated scenario. In the article, I speak to what, you know, SpaceX has done a tremendous amount of infrastructure investment and satellite. They have over 4,000 low earth orbit satellites in space. And Elon Musk has been stated on record as saying he wants to put 30,000 in the air. AST Mobile, on the other hand, Space Mobile, on the other hand, has only launched two. And only their second one supports things like beamforming and that sort of thing to pinpoint the accuracy of the signal. So again, it's really early stages to your point, but it's exciting to watch. And I really felt like there's so much ambiguity and there was a need to really educate the market here. So the other thing that I found interesting on the Twitter feedback was that my analysis was very balanced. I know at times I've not been a huge proponent of Tesla. So this wasn't a hit piece on Elon Musk whatsoever, but just like my take on where I think both companies are at. I also talk about OneWeb. So again, I encourage our viewers and listeners to dig into that article. Would love to get your feedback on that. But with that, I did mention Samsung. They were part of that initial uh, demonstration with, with respect to that satellite to smartphone connectivity. And unfortunately, I missed the Samsung Networks Analyst Day, but you were there and you want to talk about your insights and what you learned from a lot of that. Yeah, there was, it was, I would say like a business review, like filling people in that maybe aren't as in the loop as you and I are, but I'm pretty good at catching all the major Samsung announcements and partnerships. And that was pretty much a lot of that. And there were some NDA stuff. So obviously I'm not going to talk about that. Um, so there were a lot of conversations that were very, I think, productive 
Um, and we got a good business update on where Samsung Networks is and who their partners are. And we even had a, a, a short presentation from somebody from Wind River as a, that's a partner for Samsung Networks. And yeah, I think it's, their business is really evolving. And we actually got a tour of their new executive briefing center, which is basically all of their latest equipment, all of their latest demos. Um, they gave us the rundown on all the things that they announced at MWC with some of us who hadn't been there. I was at MWC, but I wasn't invited to the Samsung Networks briefing. I don't know. But it was a good conversation and it was cool to see the new demos. Their demos were really focused on FWA. They were also focused on having a network that can be flexible and dynamic with VRAN. And then also they had a demo that was focused on XR, which obviously I was interested in. Yeah. And that was with two HoloLenses kind of, it was an actual active demo where you're actually turning on things and with the Excel, with the headset and seeing augmented reality, turbines, stuff like that. It was pretty good. I yeah. think HoloLens maybe is going to be on the way out the door eventually as HoloLens loses support. But they also had a wall of all their RAN equipment and some of their other devices for the network. And it was cool to see all that stuff in real person and kind of have them break down. This is using Korea. This is used on Verizon. Just getting a good idea of their 64T64R versus their 2T2R stuff. And just looking at the breadth of options that they have for different types of bands. Um, and I, they even showed the C-band and CBRS combination device. So you can just roll it out once and have both. So it was really cool to see that. I think it was very clear to me and everyone else there that the RAND product is the core of their business right now and their core side for the, I hate to use the word core, but the core side of the network is still very much Nokia and Ericsson and right. Samsung is trying to work their way into that eventually, but it sounds like most of their customers that are using their RAND product are using Ericsson and Nokia core. So that sounds like it's a place for them to improve upon. And yeah, it was just a good briefing, a good day there. Um, and I got to see some of the people from Samsung I haven't seen in a while. And I'll see other analysts who I've seen for the last few weeks. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was a good, it was a good event and I'll probably do a, a short write up, but I posted tons of pictures on Twitter and I'll be uploading videos of all the demos on YouTube. So you can see on my personal YouTube account, I actually forgot to upload them when I got back yesterday, but I'll do it today and this should be up any minute after this is published. That's the wrap up there. That's great, man. And yeah, I did catch some of your LinkedIn updates. You were posting a lot of images and that sort of thing. And from my perspective, Samsung Networks is really owning sort of the whole VRAM space. They're really innovating there. I believe they're in their third or fourth generation third. of solution. Third. And honestly, from a RAN perspective, historically, that hasn't been a strength of Samsung's in the past. I think it's it's a sort of a testament to like they recognize an opportunity to differentiate themselves relative to Ericsson and Nokia that are very well established in the radio access network space. Yeah, it's great. And again, competition breeds innovation. But with that, let's move to my second topic. And I do want to talk about Nokia. And this is actually an article that you caught that you alerted me to. And they signed a private 5G networking deal with DXC Technology. So DXC Technology is an integrator. And what I really like about this deal is that there's no question 
that Nokia has been an early leader with respect to private 5G through the Nokia Enterprise business unit. They've been really ringing up a lot of not only proof of concepts, but actual deployments. And so what I really like about this deal is when Simon and Integrator and their footprint is it's actually quite wide. Yep. And it's very complementary as well. What DXC technology is doing is that they're really leaning into Nokia's capabilities with respect to radio and core and that sort of thing. And what they are providing is really that the the network operations layer. So the management, the analytics, the automation, the secret sauce to make this all work. And unquestionably, Nokia has the same capabilities, but you know, what Nokia has designed and architected has really been for carrier grade networks. And so what DXC technology is really focused on are these private 5G deployments. And, and obviously from a use case perspective, they are something that's very apparent to me, manufacturing, energy, healthcare, supply chain, logistics, transportation, and education. And I think it's a great partnership and it's really, I view this as possibly Nokia's 2.0 strategy with respect to private deployments to really extend their capabilities. And you're starting to see this with other players that are in the private networking space. Cisco with its 5G as a service offering, they're partnered with NT. NT serves as an integrator, just like the technology is serving as an integrator with Nokia in this scenario. So I think that this is going to give Nokia sort of a wider net to cast with respect to private deployments, but would love to get your insights. I'll give you a quick one. EXC is very deeply integrated into very many enterprise companies, IT. And I think that alone is just a huge opportunity for DXC to quickly deploy private 5G for their customers and Nokia okay. to get wins without much effort. Hey, I like it. Having a footprint and certainly like I just talked about Cisco, having a footprint within the enterprise, it gives you a natural extension in, into cellular. And certainly when you look at what, what HPE has done with the acquisition of Athenet for core capability, they're trying to do the same thing with Aruba. They're trying to extend that traditional IT enterprise networking footprint into operational technology environments and basically drive some incremental revenue, TAM, whatever you want to call it. So I did not know that. So that's a great insight, my friend. But let's move to your second topic this week. And you want to talk about the EU Commission. And not to be confused with the, the European Union, but I it, think like it's called the EC, but there's been a lot of talk about, and we, I think we've talked about this on prior podcasts about making a blanket delisting of Huawei and ZTE across the entire European Union, because there have been pockets, different parts of Europe that, that are still aligned with Huawei, but I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So today. Actually, technically it happened yesterday. Bloomberg came out with an article about how Huawei had moles within a Denmark operator called TDC, tried mm -hmm. to seal a $200 million deal. And then the operator realized that Huawei had people feeding them information from within inside the company. And then also yeah. that their security team was being spied on and they were getting uh, denial of service attacks when they left the company's headquarters and Obviously, Huawei denies a lot of this, but this is just something, another example of Huawei doing things that aren't really above board. But the bigger story is that the 
European Union industry chief, Terry Breton, on Thursday, urged more EU countries to join the 10 that have restricted or banned China's Huawei and ZTE from their 5G telecom networks. So this is the EU industry chief, which is part of the European Commission. And this is part of their European toolbox, which we actually talked about, I don't know, a week or two ago. So this is heating up. And basically, they're saying, like, follow our toolbox rules or we're going to have problems. And they're saying, like, follow the rules uh, of this whole situation with China, with specifically Huawei and, and ZTE. And apparently, I saw an article that said something like, you, if Germany were to ditch Huawei, it's going to cost them like two and a half billion dollars to do. So it's going to be expensive to make this these changes. But what they're pushing for is... European countries to pass resolutions inside their own country that effectively ban ZTE and Huawei so that the European Union doesn't have to do it on a European Union scale. And it's like urging, was urging European countries to do it. But now I was reading the European Commission's statement and it just says outright, like you you need to ban Huawei and ZTE because it's a security risk. Um, yeah, there's stories about the Australians that were having issues with security and they didn't understand how there was a backdoor in their networks and there's all kinds of stuff. And I think at this point it has gotten to a point where Huawei and ZTE are no longer an option in the EU or in the U S or any of the five eyes countries. An interesting thing that I also read was as part of the deal that the Denmark operator had signed with Huawei was that they were going to send um, equipment and software to the UK to a security facility run by the GCHQ to verify Huawei software and hardware before Denmark implemented it for security mm-hmm. reasons. And uh, Huawei stopped doing that. And that just, there's a lot of weird, shady things that are going on. And my confidence in Huawei's defend, defense is not really good anymore. And I'm starting to think that they're shadier than they let on to people to be with all these stories about how they're just not following the rules and trying to do things to make things less, less legal, in my opinion. So I get it. And so the European Commission can set sort of these edicts and these guidelines and that sort of thing, much like the United States government has been setting a lot of cybersecurity guidelines and that sort of thing. But I haven't dug into things, but from your perspective, is there really any enforcement or teeth to this, or is it just, we would like you to comply Turkey, or we would like you to comply outlying part of Europe. What's your take on that? Is there some real teeth there? Are there penalties for countries not getting aligned to what the European commission wants to see happen? I haven't seen anything yet, but what I can tell you is the ramp for the ramp for rhetoric and requirements is growing. They started from, we strongly suggest to, we recommend to, you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to do this. (laughs) They're giving them an opportunity to fall in line before they get pushed into line. So yeah, it's like being the stern parent. Yeah. It's (laughs) trying, trying to move them along. Yeah. I think that's, I think realistically, if we don't see more countries cross that, that line in the next year or two, it's just going to become an edict. Yeah. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. 
So let's move to my third and final topic. And I want to talk about T-Mobile and Google Cloud signing an edge deal. And I actually, I expected this a long time ago because when you look, at least in the US, when you look at what Verizon's been doing with us and what NT has been doing with Azure, they've been edgifying their networks. AT&T moved its mobile converged core to Azure, and there was a transfer of manpower and intellectual property and woman power that went along with that. And T-Mobile is a little bit late to the edge party, but this makes a lot of sense. And so this is with, with Google and the advanced network solutions part of T-Mobile, an area of T-Mobile that you and I have talked about on numerous occasions. And I really like the strategy that T-Mobile is employing. It's a hybrid approach. It's public. It's private. It's both. That addresses certain use cases by vertical. So it's smart city, it's manufacturing, it's healthcare, it's a number of different scenarios. And I've mentioned this numerous times that that edge is supercharged for 5G use cases. When you put compute at the data creation point on a network, whether it's on the very bleeding edge of a network, fat edge, thin edge, or lots of definitions of edges that people like to use, it's it, it can be powerful and, and then it can reduce latency and it can improve throughput and, and that sort of thing. So I think this is a long time coming. And uh, so I think it's a positive move on T-Mobile's part. They sit on the bench with respect to this. And, and honestly, I think when I look at all, when I look at the three tier ones in the U.S., I, I'm just going to say that I think AT&T has done the best job of actually taking edge and being very purposeful and directional with respect to the use case. So smart factory with General Motors is an example with AT&T. And Verizon, on the other hand, has been just, let's just go edgify the network for the sake of doing it. And let's see what use cases flow through, right? And so I think T-Mobile is a really nice, happy medium because they have this advanced network solutions portfolio. They have these defined verticals, they have these defined use cases. And they're, now they're bringing Google Cloud into picture to edify their use cases and solutions. So I think on the surface, that's a win-win. It's a meat call from my perspective for T-Mobile. They've actually, they, they're sitting now at the, the edge compute table. But what are your thoughts? I think this is an interesting one because I also think that Google Cloud is probably the most aggressive um, player trying to go out there and get new business. They're the ones who have the most room to grow. And uh, most dilutions, right? So they're, you can argue they're in the third position, right? At AWS, number one, Azure continues to gain ground on AWS, but they're a close number two, right? So I think they have the most to gain and the least to lose. There you go. Okay. Um, counterpoint. <laughs> but I think also Google Cloud, part of what they're also looking at is they're more focused on 5G applications for their cloud. And I think them deploying edge compute is going to be really valuable for T-Mobile. Um, yeah. I also think when you look at T-Mobile, they're also a little bit more Android heavy than the other operators are. So they're more likely for, to have for, for developers reasons. wanting to target their user base. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple, there's a couple points of synergy here that I think makes sense. I also yeah. thought that there were some talks about XR, which I thought was interesting. And yeah, I think this is a good match, but I also think T-Mobile, I think T-Mobile is pretty cloud agnostic, um, unlike Verizon, who very much seems like an AWS house. 
2018, who definitely seems like an Azure house. I think T-Mobile, they can lean towards Google because I think that's, they're the one operator that hasn't really committed to a necessarily one cloud partner. But I also don't think that they're fully committed to Google, nor do I think any of the other operators are fully committed to any cloud. But it just seems like the other two have already made their decisions and partnerships, put them in place. Yeah, you've got to lead with one, right? And then socks follow with the others. I am going to shout out to Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, OCI, because they are really making some moves in the telecommunications space. So I'm just going to put that out there. There there hasn't been a lot of visibility around big wins with operators in the U.S., but I think OCI is someone to keep an eye on um, in the near term. But yeah, I love your insights there, my friend. But let's go to your third and final topic as we wrap up. And we've talked about Dish off and on, and you want to talk about coverage and where they're at. So I'm going to let you take it away. Yeah, so this was a a thing that lots of people were expecting was going to happen, but needed to happen for Dish, which is that they hit their 70% coverage um, requirement, which means they won't get fined or they won't lose our $2 billion. Um, And this is a combination of Dish's AWS 4, as well as 700 megahertz E-block, AWS H-block, and 600 megahertz spectrum. So... It's a lot of low band S and this will obviously be easier to propagate. So it won't necessarily be super fast, but what's interesting is it's already like a commercial 5G network, standalone network with, with open RAN. So there, there are more modern network and it's going to be interesting to see how this actually performs as a network. Um, yeah. so I'm actually going to reach out to my contacts edition, see if I can get a fourth line of service on a fourth carrier. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think at this point, the next barrier will be hitting, I think it's 90% of the population. And that's going to be the most difficult because yeah, the first like 80% is really easy or even the first 70%. It's starting to get into the less dense areas where people are more difficult and costly to cover. And the next deadline will actually be 75% by 2025, but that requires a lot more densification and capital. And as we know, we talked about their financial situation. They might be actually looking for more funding, which might be a function of this 75% requirement, but they've got two years to do that. And yeah, it's, their stocks are not doing great, but I think if they can really make it through this tough time, I think they will be a compelling fourth operator. They will probably end up being more of a budget play, but also I think they're going to end up being more of like a private networking company. And I think that's where a lot of their profits will be. Yeah, no, I agree. And we've talked about this in the past. So they can't go head to head with the big three and expect to be successful. So they're going to have to like not niche themselves, but differentiate themselves. And so certainly private is an area I've talked about IOT in the past as an area of differentiation. T-Mobile's running with that with its TIOT initiative with Deutsche Telekom and harmonizing the whole notion of IoT on a global basis. But uh, yeah, it's all good. Let's not forget about U.S. Cellular, although it's funny. I shared some insights about U.S. Cellular probably a few weeks ago, and I had one person on Twitter like be very vocal about the fact that they're not properly investing in infrastructure and 
areas of rural America that really need it. I think that might be an interesting subject for you and I to dive into a little bit deeper. Like, where is U.S. cellular setting? Because all of a sudden, DISH, you know, it's appear and they're focused on this cloud-native, highly disaggregated architecture to drive agility and CapEx and OpEx benefits. But where's U.S. cellular and the whole big schema thing? So we might have to reach out to their CTO and have them on a future podcast. But, but with that said, my friend, it's been another great podcast. I'm operating on one hour of sleep. I took a red eye from Las Vegas, so I hope I didn't seem too punchy on our podcast. But I always love talking about 5G with you, but why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would provide insights for a future 5G pop topic on a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Will Tech and I'm at Archel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week. And don't forget to like and subscribe. You can subscribe.